Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Emily Largent. Uh, She's the Emmanuel and Robert Hart Assistant Professor dealing with medical ethics and health policy at University of Pennsylvania in the Perlman School of Medicine. Um, She works uh, with Alzheimer's. Uh, She looks at the research, the ethics of it, um, the issues that come up in regards to it. So, Emily, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I didn't, um, I don't know, what would be the ethical issues associated with Alzheimer's research? I I figured that, uh, you know, people are researching, trying to help people, but uh, are there any conundrums involved with it? Like, what, what would be the issues? Yeah, so I would say this is a really interesting and exciting time in Alzheimer's disease research. You know, unfortunately, people, um, you know, a lot of people's lives are affected by Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. It's about five and a half million Americans have dementia and millions more are caregivers and care partners for them. And that means that they provide really billions of hours every year of assistance with various activities that people need support with, whether it's balancing a checkbook or managing medications or more intimate activities like feeding, bathing, dressing, and grooming. And one of the great concerns is that right now we really don't have any disease-modifying therapies. We don't have a way to reverse dementia or to slow down its progression. And so the United States has set a really audacious goal of trying to find a disease-modifying therapy by 2025. And along with that goal setting has been a tremendous inflow of research dollars to try to better understand Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, and also to identify therapies. And as a result of this real boom in research, we've seen a tremendous growth in what we understand. And so really the very way in which we understand Alzheimer's disease is changing. And a key premise of my research is that it's you know, our understanding of Alzheimer's disease is changing in ways that will have really fundamental impact on the lived experience of being diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease for patients and also for their family members. And so I've been really trying to understand what are the social implications of that? What are the legal and ethical implications of that? And really, how can we start to prepare now as ethicists who are interested in informing patient care to take the research that's so interesting and promising to really think about how we're going to translate it to providing high quality bedside care for people. Well, how did the ethics come to play versus the scientific research? I would think that, you know, companies are researching and if they find medicines that can help, they're going to bring them into the clinic. But what are the ethics involved? Would you not want to give it to somebody if it's against their wishes, if they signed something saying, if I ever get dementia, don't treat me. I mean, where, where do the ethics come into play? Yeah, so, you know, consent is always an issue in ethics, and we think about that in treatment. But what's been interesting about this research I was describing is that there's actually been a lot of thinking that suggests that intervening much earlier in the course of Alzheimer's disease, even before the onset 
of cognitive impairment might be more effective in preventing dementia. And so studies have been looking for people earlier and earlier, and it's now in research accepted that we can identify changes in the brain well before the onset of cognitive symptoms. So we call these Alzheimer's disease biomarkers. People can have amyloid, they can have tau or neurodegeneration, and we can start to see these and understand somebody's risk of developing dementia eventually as a result of Alzheimer's disease a decade or more before they would have any cognitive impairment. And so a lot of my work is trying to understand, you know, historically we had a pattern where, you know, the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the diagnosis of dementia were really intimately connected. Somebody came in with cognitive complaints, the clinician assessed them, and then they determined that they had dementia and the most likely cause of that was Alzheimer's disease. But now with our utilization of biomarkers, it's actually possible to separate these things And there's potential that in the future, somebody could be diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, Right now, researchers call this preclinical Alzheimer's disease. So changes in the brain well before they have any cognitive symptoms. And I think that, you know, we can all imagine that this is a huge piece of news to learn about yourself. Here you are cognitively unimpaired, but we can tell you something about your risk of developing dementia in the future. And of course, dementia is... You know, research has shown time and again one of the most feared conditions of old age because it so intimately affects not only our personal identity and sense of self, but really our social relationships in fundamental ways. Yeah, it's a loss of yourself. It's a, in a way, it's like a death while you're alive. So I can't understand why it would be terrible. Yeah, a lot of people talk about it as a fate worse than death. So your language goes exactly to what people worry about. So some of the work I've done with my team at the University of Pennsylvania has been to interview people who get, who are cognitively unimpaired, who have received these risk estimates through participation research. So they wanted to participate in Alzheimer's disease research. They come in, they're tested for the Alzheimer's disease biomarkers, and then they receive you know, the the results are disclosed to them. And then we follow them after they get those results about their risk for Alzheimer's disease to understand something about how that affects them personally. So how does it affect them emotionally? How does it change future plans? Are they thinking a little bit differently about work versus retirement? Are they thinking differently about how they would like to um, arrange their advanced care planning? And then we also have been interested in looking at how it affects their relationships with other people. What, what are some of the commonalities you notice when people get this, uh, I don't know diagnosis, but future likelihood that uh, they're going to have dementia or Alzheimer's? What do they tend to do? Yeah, so what's interesting is that right now we tell people the two possible results you have after an amyloid PET scan are that it's elevated, which means that you have this increased but uncertain risk of developing Alzheimer's disease, or it's not elevated which doesn't necessarily mean that you couldn't go ahead to develop Alzheimer's disease in the future, but does it is reassuring about your risk of developing in the future. And what we find across the not elevated, they're a little bit boring, actually. Everybody feels relief. You talk to them, and that's the word that comes up over and over again. They felt so much relief. But for people who find out that they're elevated and have that increased risk in the future, we see that they understand the result. They're able to articulate it. Some people have suggested that people not understanding the result is a reason not to share it with them, but we've really been able to disprove that concern. People do generally understand what we're telling them about their risk. Um, And they 
tell us that the result feels very different than other medical test results. So we've had somebody who said to us, I thought quite evocatively, a colonoscopy isn't going to change who I am. This is my brain involved. And so they feel like it is a really different kind of test result we're giving them. And then they go on and they talk about their feelings about it. And interestingly, people divide out into sort of three groups in this group of elevated research participants. So some people really then describe their future as being quite bleak. Um, they often refer to images of people who they know, a loved one, a mother, um, an uncle, and talk about how those people were like vegetables or lived in a way that they don't aspire to. There's a group of people who just says, you know, I have this information, but there are a lot of question marks still. The future is really unknown. And then we have about a quarter of people who say that they have a really bright future ahead of them. And that bright future group was very interesting to us because that wasn't what we expected. You know, as you and I were just saying, people really fear dementia. And so to have people get the elevated results and come back and tell us their future was bright was interesting. When we probed a little bit deeper with them, they went on to say that they had faith in science and scientific progress, that something would come up, a cure or an intervention before they developed Alzheimer's disease, dementia. Or they talked about being one of the lucky ones um, to get through it. Maybe they had family members who lived into a healthy old age and they thought that they could avoid it. I mean, some people just said they were optimistic by nature. So emotionally, it does seem to be very safe to give people this information. Over time, their feelings sort of regress back to the mean, and they seem to still have, um, you know, this isn't reconceived as good news, but they do start to feel, you know, they incorporate it into their sense of self, and they really do start to make changes to their future plans. We see people are engaging in more health behaviors, so People tell us they're eating more nuts and berries and eating more salmon because that's good for their brain or they're exercising or playing brain games. And people are also making changes to their future plans. So maybe downsizing their home, moving closer to an adult child who could be a caregiver in the future, and a lot of planning, financial planning, reworking a will, talking with people about their future care wishes. It makes sense that people would have maybe three possible outcomes or outlooks at it. You know, some will say, all right, it's a challenge. Some will say, I give up already, and some, I guess, would say, I'm going to fight this thing to the death, and some maybe are just accepting of it. Is that, in general, what you see, or is it more nuanced even than that? I think that's a pretty good broad characterization of it. You know, those are the three groups, the bright future, fight to the end, the bleak future, resignation group, and then the unknown group, but you know, I, I did think it was really interesting. These are people who come in knowing that there is no disease modifying therapy for Alzheimer's disease, but they still talk about feeling really empowered by receiving this information because while they can't do things medically, you know, they can't take a pill or a drug to ward off Alzheimer's disease, they feel like they can do other things and plan ahead. And I think that's one of the really important findings from our research is that people use the information in a lot of ways in their lives, not just to direct their medical care. What about people that uh, don't want to know, but it's, it's probably obvious or it seems apparent that they may have some cognitive difficulties. Is there a group like that? And, you know, what's their mental state uh, like? They just don't want to know. They don't want to get tested. Yeah. So this, they leave them alone. This is an interesting challenge in our research. We have gone through and really worked with people who are already participating in Alzheimer's disease research. And so these are people who 
are very proactive about their cognitive health. They're very worried about Alzheimer's disease oftentimes because they've had a close family member who has been diagnosed with it and they've often watched the progression of that illness. And so, you know, it's, it's a limitation we acknowledge in our work that there's just this group of people that you allude to who don't want to know um, that we have not talked with in this respect. And so, you know, there's, there's other work that's been done with people and there is a group of people who just say, you know, if you can't tell me what's happening with 100% certainty, I would prefer not to know. I, I don't need to have these risk calculations, um, but that'll be a group that will be really important for future research and as things become available more broadly. How you know, do you educate those people about the options and make sure that you are helping them make a decision that's consistent with their values and their interests? Yeah, I'm of the I don't want to know group. And my wife is the opposite, but you know, not, not that I think that I have cognitive decline, but just in general, I just feel like I don't want to know. I don't want to take this test that to test. But you know, I thought the other day, you know, I mean, it's obvious, but you know, everyone's going to die. Wouldn't I want to know um, how I'm going to die or when or if I could do anything about it? Now, I'm still bouncing the idea back and forth, but I still am of that group where you know, I'd rather not know for some reason, but maybe. I don't know. I'm just fooling myself. No, I think it's reasonable. And you and your wife is an example. You're not the first couple I've heard of where um, the two partners don't necessarily agree. So we've had people who found information out and you know, they realized that their spouse was uncomfortable having it or wouldn't want to know. We also see this in studies we've done of disclosing genetic risk of Alzheimer's disease. And there are people who say very explicitly that you know, they other people in their lives didn't want to know that they had the information for themselves and that was important, but that they had to respect other people in their lives were not interested in knowing if they shared that gene with them. Now, what about the therapies? Um, so there's nothing supposedly that slows down dementia or Alzheimer's. There's nothing that affects it. There's really no good disease modifying therapy. So last year um, there were some, clinical trial results that ended up showing that maybe there was a drug that was useful for people with mild cognitive impairment. And I think that we'll see that approved by the FDA probably within the next year, if all goes according to plan. And, you know, that will be the first drug that's approved. It will not be the best drug. And so we'll still really be wrestling with trying to find something better for people. Um, there have been a lot of really unfortunate trial closures, trials closing early because of either futility. You know, when they took a look at the data midway through, there was no evidence it was working or even for harm in some cases that the drug actually appeared to be making people worse off than they would have been otherwise. Um, and in those cases, we've had to share really disappointing news with the research community and with research participants about the fact that these trials they've invested years of their life in not panning out and you know, people are incredibly hopeful. I think participating in Alzheimer's disease research is an inherently hopeful act. Um, you know, even if you're clear with people when they sign up that it may or may not work and they understand that intellectually there is a persistent hope. And you know, okay. another, another area that we've done some work in is, you know, unfortunately the way trials work. And because Alzheimer's is such a huge problem, you know, from a public health perspective, again, it's those millions of people who are affected. These drugs would be a blockbuster if they were approved and succeeded. 
And right. as a result, there's huge interest in getting the results of trials when they're closed out to shareholders. And the SEC has requirements that that would be disclosed you know, as material information to shareholders. But as a result, there have been some missteps where people who have participated in trials for years actually open up their iPhone in the morning and they see in the news um, that the trial they've been participating in has been closed. And there's been you know, some real frustration in the community that people who have sacrificed of their time and accepted the burdens of research participation and the risks, so they sort of feel like the last to know and so we've been trying to really advocate for figuring out how we can do a better job talking to participants when trials end and reaching out to them within the confines of sort of these legal structures we have from the SEC and the reporting requirements. What about uh, diet and exercise? Does no one think that that's a, a therapy or is no one looking at that? I mean, if this is such a big problem, yeah. why is that not uh, spoken about? Yeah, so we do encourage people to do that. In the studies I'm involved in, for example, we tell people that they have elevated amyloid. And even if they don't, we encourage everyone to really focus on a healthy diet, staying active, staying socially engaged. We know those things can be helpful. Um, right now, the World Health Organization actually has those as their key recommendations for people in the absence of a disease-modifying therapy. It really is to just try to stay generally healthy as that can help reduce your risk, but it's not a magic bullet. Well, right. It's not a magic bullet, but is anyone even doing a trial with diet and exercise? Yeah. Is that not even, uh, you know, considered to be a trial for some reason? Yeah. There are definitely people who are doing that and people are looking at other things too, like whether or not sleep, um, you know, and having better sleep is something that could help reduce people's risk. So, you know, it's, it's, as I said, there's been a huge interest in trying to find a disease modifying therapy and people really are, I have to say, my, you know, my colleagues in the field are doing a great job hunting down all the, all the options. Are there any, is there anything that looks promising or all the drugs focused on amyloid and tau and, and nothing else? I mean, is there, are there any other pathways or interventions yeah, so that may be very different looking that are being looked at? Well, you mentioned amyloid, and of course, a lot of the drugs that have been in these trials I mentioned closing have been drugs that were targeting amyloid in the brain, and you know, people are starting to question whether or not amyloid is really going to be the way to go. I think some people that I talk with are starting to feel more hopeful about tau, for example, um, and you know, trials are always coming and going. I'm not a clinical trialist myself, so won't speak to what these look like, but as I said, people really are trying to exhaust um, the range of options available given what a pressing public health concern this is. So what do you see as the, you know, the 2025 goal? Do you think we have any hope of even getting there or it's going to pass us and we're going to keep looking? I think something will be approved by then, but I, as I said, I think that will be the first thing and not the best thing and that we're really going to have to keep hunting. It's too big a problem. It affects far too many people. The social costs are too great um, for us to sort of be satisfied with the first, the first thing. Okay. Um, any, uh, well, resources for people listening that have a family member that's going through this or they themselves are starting to experience trouble or they want to get tested, where do they start looking? 
Yeah, so the Alzheimer's Association has a great website with support for patients and caregivers, as well as the National Institute on Aging. And for people who are interested in research opportunities, the National Institute on Aging website is a great place to start to learn more about trials and research that are happening. We can always use more people to participate. Okay, and um, if you wish, uh, any way for anyone to, you know, to look at in particular your efforts and the ethics involved and uh, to get in contact with you know, University of Pennsylvania or you yourself? Yeah, I would send them to the Penn Memory Center website. If you Google Penn Memory Center, um, it will take you right there. And that has information about our whole team, the Penn Project for Precision Medicine on the Brain or P3MB, um, the research we're doing and linked to my contact information as well. So it's a it's another good starting point if people are interested in learning more about biomarkers. Okay. Well, very good, Emily. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.